0: mississippi crop situation podcast featuring the crop doctors
1: are we ready are you loud enough um you tell
0: me oh i don't know i can't hear in your own ears i mean are you loud oh, enough well in your yeah ears? i think i'm okay
1: and maybe it's still Damn. i don't know it's fuzziness it's COVID. post-covid don used a four-letter word and i was recording way to go don
0: I figure
2: you're going to chop all this out.
0: We just lost our clean lyrics rating. Thank you. And I guarantee you're
2: going to chop all this crap on the front off anyway. Now
0: you've used another four letter word that's only marginally offensive. You get in trouble in the second grade for that. Maybe not. (laughs) Maybe not in the 10th grade.
1: Whatever. Can we put the words up on the wall? Keep the content second grade. (laughs)
0: <laughs> no we want to maintain our clean lyrics rating. focus on what Rogan we can,
1: doesn't say
0: we can have the broadest audience possible all right so good morning from the crop doctors podcast studio are you not playing the music i muted the music in order to capture oh yes okay so now you don't know how long i've been recording no <laughs> no i don't <laughs> and you'll have to wait and find out if you haven't figured it out yet don's here And Whitney's here. I think Whitney was wise to what was going on. So she went immediately quiet. (laughs) Shrewd
1: move. All right. So, Tom, tell us, introduce our topic for today. Okay. We are going to talk about control guidelines, such as are included in the weed control guideline book, and then also in the insect control guideline book. Uh, I had a consultant who will remain nameless call me last week and say, that's really important information, how specialists develop those actual values that are included in there. And I think sometimes that conversation gets lost when we're making presentations. And and I get that because you have a limited amount of time to talk about things. And we all attempt to not talk about things that would make the audience feel like they're watching paint peel off the walls. But, you know, I think we each work some of that in there, but it's important for folks to know that it takes years of developing some of those control guidelines, manuals or books uh, and what goes into that. So we're going to talk, you know, together as a group, how we go about putting those together over time.
0: So I was really struggling this morning to come up with a question to ask Whitney because yeah, we hammered Don there a couple weeks i say hammered don we we don has been the he's taking the brunt of some of those questions the target so i was Mm -hmm. trying to think of one to ask whitney and i didn't really come up with one that was real great now i don't know i guess i'm hungry or something because they all kept coming back to food so whitney this is just off the cuff so what was your favorite sitcom growing up
3: i have no idea
1: that's
0: not a valid answer was <laughs> <That's> a fantastic <laughs>
1: look that'll be captured in the video series
0: i mean the question requires an answer
3: i don't i really don't know that i have an answer
0: oh my
1: goodness tom who has <laughs> <It's> never met <coughs> a question he didn't have an answer for sometimes i struggle more than others i mean honestly more towards my adult life I, i don't recall watching all that many sitcoms when i was a kid growing up those just weren't big in the in the allen household but as i got older i really came to appreciate seinfeld and still do and can watch those reruns just over and over and over again and pick out the most strange minute details from all of that of course the later episodes are much better
3: how'd you go from food to sitcom?
1: Because I didn't want to do another food question. <laughs> Cause, uh, He's trying to forget the fact that he may or may not be
0: hungry. <laughs> yeah. I, and I'm, I'm trying to be unpredictable. Don, you, you want to weigh in on the sitcom?
2: Well, I'm not sure it fits the classic sitcom definition, but I was always partial to Andy Griffith when I was growing up.
1: I think that's sitcom. In the more broader terminology, probably yes. Was it filmed before a live studio audience? Not sure. I think some of it was done on
0: location. I think so, too.
2: A lot of it's, you know, outside. I I imagine some of the, you know, the inside of the building shots were on, you know, on a stage somewhere
1: on a set. I think the Andy Griffith show, You would expect to hear something like that come
0: out of Don's mouth. It just kind of fits Don's persona.
1: (laughs) Well, and there's certainly some classics that they continue to remain on television or that continue to remain on television. I mean, MASH is still spectacular. Hogan's Heroes is on.
0: Does the cable channel TV land, is that still a thing? Yes, yes I think do, so. So they, do they still show a lot of those old shows yes. like that? So pre-DVR kind of thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, could, you probably, could binge watch something. Oh, and well, we found out last week Don has only recently discovered the DVR function on his C L I box. I've heard him enunciate that multiple times
1: now, which is actually hilarious. We, we try to impress upon the children in our house that there was, once upon a time, a thing called a VCR. And if you purchased that at the right time, it was the difference between a VCR and a Betamax, if anybody I, remembers that.
2: I can remember the days when you had to get up out of the chair, walk over to the TV to change the channel. And now
0: Whitney's over there scrolling through her phone while she...
3: Yeah, I don't know Apple, what y'all are talking about. <laughs> it's, a, it's a
2: generational thing. <laughs> I have one question before we get off of this and go on to you know, more meaningful things. How many in this room, excluding me, remember Captain Kangaroo?
0: Yes.
1: Oh yeah. No.
0: Of course. <laughs> came on PBS. Well, I came on CBS there for a while. Since we have thoroughly bored everyone, <laughs> with <the> mindless babbling.
1: <laughs> Let's start with the entomologists and okay. move to the weed scientists. How does that sound? So either because, because or Dawn, they outnumber. Me or because I'm working the controls? Because you're working the controls. Okay. Choose an example from the most recent control guideline book and and focus on something that's changed because I think it's important to highlight some of those changes and use those as decent examples. And the one we were talking about before was Thrips numbers on Thrive on Cotton, I think, and how the Thrive on Cotton may lead to developing new threshold numbers. Thrips, we don't have a lot of... Questions on plant bugs is where we got questions
2: on. So take it from there.
3: So how we change those. There's a lot of questions around do we need to alter? Are we planning to alter the threshold for thrive on cotton in regards to tarnished plant bugs? Currently we are not planning to adjust that threshold and we're recommending that you utilize what's established in the control guide. But the reason why we are making this statement is because of the amount of time that it takes to evaluate the threshold will we probably start looking at that at adjusting that a threshold yes but you have to take into consideration all of the points that go into collecting the data to alter that threshold in addition to that and i'll let dawn talk about some of those points but in addition to that you also have to consider then we're going to have two different thresholds for the same pest. So how does that complicate the situation? And is it easier to use what we currently recommend in regards to management for the sake of ease?
1: The entomology group in the mid-southern United States is one to be fairly envious of because you all do a spectacular job of working together, developing protocols and trials amongst each other, and then share and contribute data to one another so that you're... Guidelines and thresholds when you get to that point will probably include something that will have more of a regional flavor to it as a result of that working group.
3: Yes, that's correct.
1: The other thing
2: is it's very advantageous to it. With the amount of data that you need, when you've got eight of us working on it, it's a whole lot easier to get and get it a
1: lot quicker than when there's only one or two of us working on it. Is that a direct slam at somebody like no. a plant pathologist? No, I just I <laughs> no, felt like no. I had to ask that question, Don. I, no, I, I, this, I, this I is not directed not. at
2: anybody. It's just the more of us working on it, we get the the amount of data we need faster than if it was just one or two of us. It's not a slight on anybody else.
1: I think we just we've been very fortunate to have relationships
2: like that that we could do
1: that. Uh, and like I said, it's it's one to be pretty envious of because honestly, y'all can make more progress in a single season. Should listeners expect that if there is to be a change on that, that y'all could do that in the 2022 season? Or is that something that's probably going to be further out like 23, or that's going to depend on plots, acres, and everything else that may factor into that? I would say that off the
2: cuff right now, don't expect anything in the next couple of years because it may still take us several years once it gets commercialized, you know, to to see everything and see if we need a change and what that might be. I mean, these things just do not happen over the night.
1: Well, and I, I think that's an important point to make, Don, that there's a lot of behind closed doors, email, text conversations, late night telephone calls and everything else that goes into developing some of those things and bouncing things around that in, in my own discipline, I think sometimes we expect things to come a little faster when it comes to a particular management practice. And, and it takes years to look at things real carefully to make sure that you don't miss something and that you factor in all of those specific habits that may go into developing those and then test it yourself and then release that information so that sometimes you're talking two to three to five years depending upon what that particular Character is or what it is that you need for everybody to consider.
0: Don't y'all have an example of a threshold that got changed in the past several years?
3: Yeah, we have we added the egg threshold for two gene and non BT cotton.
0: Maybe that's what it was, Whitney.
3: We realized because of resistance, the best thing to do to get ahead of those worms getting in like the bracts of the squares and bloom tags. So to get that application out before they are hidden and protected in those fruiting structures, the best thing to do was to spray on eggs. And there was a number of years prior to adopting or recommending the egg threshold, looking at where the distributions of eggs were occurring to make it easier. So we have 20% eggs, meaning one egg per plant on 20 plants out of 100. Um, spraying on that so there was a couple of years prior to that actual recommendation where we looked at that egg distribution but essentially the purpose is is we get that application out ahead of that egg egg lay and that egg hatch only in the technologies that don't have VIP
2: there's a couple of other little underlying things to that one is the products the diamides work better when those larvae hatch into it instead of going after established The other thing is exactly what Whitney said. Once they get in in those structures, it doesn't matter what it is. You can't deal with them. They're protected. And then it got to the point on the two gene cottons where up until then, we we were using a damage slash larval threshold. And that was to allow any that were sick to die. But it got to where there was so many there's such a greater risk of them surviving and going through this is led into this as well.
1: If you consider the specifics or the specific products that y'all include in those control guide books, it's not a label book. So you don't have everything that's in there. It revolves around the bulk of what you've tested in plots over a period of time.
3: Correct. It is, it's going to be the most effective products. The ones that we generally tend to use on a regular basis you're referring back to the working group a minute ago. Our Mid-South working group has a set protocol list that we conduct on an annual basis. It's pretty much the same protocol every year. And we're able to see how those products change over time. A good one is acephate with thrips. We're starting to see a decrease in efficacy. So we've been able to test for resistance. But because we established we have those established protocols, we're able to see the change in these products over time. And as we suspect resistance, we're able to pull them out um, as things change.
1: Well, and the resistance topic is just going to continue to be one that's at the forefront for, for any of us that work in the overall pest management categories.
0: I think you made an interesting point, Tom, and it's one that I'll remind folks of when we're talking about control, guys, that it's not a label book. It's not all possible products and certainly not all possible combinations of products. It's the ones that that we've evaluated and the ones we feel comfortable suggesting for use by our growers. For example, our policy with the weed control guide, and it's, to my knowledge, always been like that. I don't know whose idea it was originally. It's certainly been like that ever since I've been here, is that we won't put it in our control guide until we've evaluated it at least two years, which is pretty standard research and we wouldn't publish anything or couldn't publish anything uh, with less than two runs of data on it. So that's always kind of been our standard in the weed control guide is to have something that we've evaluated and then repeated it and assuming got
1: similar results, then moved it forward into the control guide. And I think in some respect to that statement, I struggle some years when you get asked to make a presentation on a specific topic. And, and I won't use any, for example, from the plant pathology world. But if you only have a year of data, I think sometimes it's really hard to impress upon the audience that these data are really preliminary. And I think in a lot of cases, they, they struggle for some management practice that they want to implement to re- alleviate the pressure from whatever that issue is. And they jump to judgment instead of waiting for some of those data to come out. And and I don't necessarily know how to address that moving forward because I think that as there are less and less of us in some disciplines, that will become a more important situation to consider.
0: Another level to that, there's less of us, but there's also no new active ingredients. Therefore, most of the new products are new combinations in my case premixes is what we call them but new combinations of existing products therefore there's a body of data there there's not a body of data with that particular combination and if there is a particular combination that we've evaluated say in a tank mixture there's not a data with that premixed product which you would expect would perform similar to the tank mix but There's always the possibility for an exception, and you need to
1: evaluate it as that formulated product. At least in my particular discipline, there are some new products within specific classes of products or classes of chemistries. The issue becomes there are some really fine differences in how some of those perform, and I'm not so aware of how that occurs in either entomology or weed science, but you take, for example, the the strobilurin, a quinone, outside inhibitor fungicides, there are some inherent differences between each of those chemistries. And they're usually really subtle. They're not something that would kick one out versus another. Uh, but that's definitely something to consider because, and then heck, how some of those respond when you put them in a premix is even different and not something that's easy to, uh, again, it takes a while to evaluate that. And to crunch the numbers behind the scenes, that's a lot of late-night moving numbers around in a spreadsheet over a period of years. We're
2: not looking at very hardly any new actives. I mean, a, a few new combinations as well. But I think that's just the nature of where the, this business or whatever you want to call it has got. I mean, you know, the 60s, 70s, 80s were just – I mean, multiple new actives coming out every year, and I think we've hit a point where that's just not going to happen anymore.
0: I was building a slide three or four weeks ago, so I was pulling numbers out of the rating table for soybeans out of our weed control guide. And as I'm putting them on the slide, and I've called myself checking those numbers one by one over the years. I was putting them on a slide, and I guess just seeing it in a new Format or whatever really jumped out at me. And I'm questioning, is that number right? And then I go back and look, and, I, and I'm on the right row and column and all that in the table. So I wasn't you know, looking at it incorrectly. That's the number that I had. But then, like Don said, some of this stuff goes way back. Oh, yes. For example, you take something like Treflan, Treflan is in, it is a row in the rating table in the weed control guide. Pretty sure it's in the soybean section, definitely probably in in the cotton section. Well, I've never gone and sprayed Treflan with the intent of rating plots to make sure my numbers in the weed control guide are right. I've assumed that whoever worked on those before had an accurate number in there. The other side of that is you go out in my field here at Stoneville, I've got a lot of good weed pressure. But then I don't have 25 different weeds out there either. I'm routinely rating three to five, maybe four to six, depending on the field that we're in. And so how many numbers, you know, how many columns, which in our weed control guide, the rating table, the columns are the the weed species. And there's probably 20 or 25 Species in there. You know, I think of small flower morning glory. I know what small flower morning glory is. Have I ever rated it in a weed control plot? No, I haven't. So then where does that number come from? That number comes from someone having rated it somewhere in the state over the years, but it also comes from looking at the other weed control guides and seeing what LSU has listed and what the University of Arkansas has listed or University of Tennessee. That's the three that I've relied on over the years to back-check my numbers and then talking to people like with y'all's Mid-South Working Group. Done a lot of that, too, over the years.
2: That would be one advantage we have. We're not dealing with the number of organisms that you are in. We have things that we can just about guarantee that we can you know, do trials against every year, and then there's others that are more of, okay, I'll get it when I sh- when it shows up. For example, this past year I did some trials on some salt marsh caterpillar. I hadn't done trials on salt, salt marsh caterpillar in probably 20 years because I hadn't seen enough of them. I mean, you can see a few here, there, and yonder, but never at, you know, levels that them, they themselves would require treatment or levels enough of a population that you could test. So some of the more obscure things are kind of like what you're talking about. And then there's other things that, you know, for example, plant bugs and cotton, I mean, you can do trials on them every year.
0: And that's been our strategy too. The species that we rate in our weed control plots—if you go look at the surveys of the common and troublesome weeds in Mississippi—those are the species that you're going to see. So every plot has palm amaranth it has barnyard grass and/or broadleaf signal grass, and it's got a morning glory species that would be on our row crop stuff, and then on the the rice, it would have your barnyard grass, morning glory, hemp sesbania, Palmer too, uh, but those biggest weeds that you get the most question about those are the ones we have but then i get the questions every year about the random stuff and, and i got to go look in the table too and then trust that that number was contrived accurately whenever it was
1: whenever they came up with it in years gone by well but if you consider how broad a production range we have in the state of mississippi it makes sense and has value to continue to have some of those lesser species within your weed control guide because certainly there's got to be somebody in this state who deals with the morning glory that you mentioned
0: let me look i've got the our 2022 one right here i don't remember if i took it out or not no i put it back one year in the rice section which i've worked on more years than the other sections just because i've been doing rice every year since i've been at stoneville my table was getting a little jumbled up, so I took gooseweed out. Do you know what gooseweed is, Tom? I do not know what gooseweed is. Don, I know what goosegrass is, but I don't think it's the same thing. Whitney may, but she was a weed scientist That's in another right. lifetime. Previous but
3: science. no, no rice. I have no idea what that is. <laughs> All right. <so laughs>
0: I know what it is. Don't know that I'd ever gotten a question about it, but I take gooseweed out
1: of the table. Probably had a thirty-seven thousand questions about gooseweed, didn't you? The very same year
0: I get questioned about gooseweed, so then the next year gooseweed goes back in the table. The other horror story a few years ago. We were working on formatting, so Whitney and I were talking about that before we started recording the effort that has gone into making sure, in our case, the soybean section looks like the rice section looks like the cotton section, you know, formatting-wise. And so we alphabetized the weeds in the table, and we did grasses and then broad leaves. Well, there's a whole lot of copying and pasting got done, right? so we print however many of these things we printed that year 12 1300 and i mean no more had given the first one out than somebody asked me about the prefix rating on palmer amaranth in the soybean section and it's like a two which is not good right <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, huh, that's a, an interesting observation you've made there. So we go and you know, lay them out and look at the year before. And sure enough, we had made some pretty terrible errors. We had good intentions of making everything more clear. And in the meantime, we just absolutely destroyed it. And it couldn't be the the small acreage crop. It had to be the soybean table. So I think it was both soybean tables and then maybe the uh, small grains table. There was three of them that we had messed up. And so we still have just boxes and boxes of these control guides printed out that we hadn't given out yet. So we just did a cease and desist on giving them out. We fixed it, printed off corrected Copies of those rating tables and then stapled them into the front of the, the week. Yeah. So if you had one of those that year, that was my fault. I apologize. The but unfortunate
1: we thing is, is that that malady is not worth something. If it was a baseball card, it would be worth a tremendous amount of money. You know, it's worth absolutely. Absolutely. Positively nothing. nothing. <laughs> Barely nothing worth the paper it's but, printed on. But
0: heartbreak <laughs> on my part.
1: That's that additional Shear set panic. of eyes. So, how do you include information when it comes to the resistant species that we continue to encounter, Jason? Because that's like the one burning question that's come up into my head, and then we'll ask entomologists that huge challenge for us.
0: Because you take something that we deal with every day, glyphosate-resistant Palmer. You are talking about a susceptible Palmer. Rewind the clock twenty years, you could kill one that was three feet tall with glyphosate, and. Now, so that would be a 10, right, in the rating table. Well, now it's a zero. I mean, it's not even you kill a little bit of them. Most populations, it's it's nothing. There's no effect whatsoever. So we've struggled with that over the years, how to uh, account for that. One strategy would be to make a different column, right? But then if you've got, say, 25 rows in that column, 22 of them are going to be the same, and then you're going to have those specific products in this case glyphosate where the the number is going to be different so that's really not a good strategy because you don't you're using up a lot of space and then you know you're getting a lot of fatigue trying to look through this table when you got these columns that are basically identical except for a couple rows so we've chosen to go the route of the rating is for the susceptible species and then we have a footnote of the resistance cases and then we have a whole section in the front of the guide for herbicide-resistant weeds. And so that's been our strategy with that over the years. And it took a number of years as the resistance became a bigger and bigger deal. Going back 05 forward, 05 to 15 was probably when we were just getting swamped by seemed like new cases of something every year. Uh, and that was just kind of a strategy that evolved over
1: time. How are we going to change that moving forward when additional things occur? And I and I guess I asked that. I certainly didn't think very clearly about that before I asked. But what's coming down the pike? I mean, do you even want to speculate on some of those types of things? Or coming down resistance-wise resistance or coming wise? or wise, yeah, coming uh, down resistance wise. Because I mean, we all we've all basically said there's not a lot of new actives, not a lot of new classes of chemistry coming. So that's certainly not something that will lend itself to improving management. If you think about selection pressure and the volume
0: of stuff going out, then it would stand to reason that a Palmer amaranth resistant to dicamba could quite possibly be the next big thing. Uh, already have them in Tennessee, and so that just stands to reason that that is a distinct possibility that that could be the next one. How would we handle that? We would include it in the herbicide-resistant weed section because that section is organized by weed species, whereas the bulk of our weed control guides organized by crop, that one is organized by weed species. So it's glyphosate and ALS-resistant Palmer amaranth, or it's... ALS ACCH resistant barnyard grass and they're clumped together like that rather than organized by crop and then there's recommendations within each of those species for
1: the different crops where that particular problem might show up what about you into folks how do you handle a more global resistance issue
3: I think it's a little bit easier for us because all our crops are then we're broken down into crop and then into insect species so if it's resistant, we're able to pull it out of that main table. If there's resistance, we can just pull it out. Now in our back where we have um, ratings, they stay in there. It's just going to have a low a low rating compared to things that are working. But generally speaking, we're able to pull it out. Or if we're dealing with something like a good example is neonics and plant bugs, there's resistance there, but we tend to recommend on pre-bloom. So we're able to make a footnote that, you know, we see resistance only utilize this product at a specific time.
2: Yeah, our things happen, I guess, on a faster timeline than yours, and it you know not only resistance within a population, but over ge- geography as well. And that's generally we don't separate things out that as far in, in like in the the ratings that Whitney was talking about. You'll see that reflected every year as you get that resistance bills. We won't like pull it out and have you know ratings for susceptible populations because these things move back and forth and it'll hit to the point where it just it'll just come out of like for a pest in a certain crop where it, we just pull it out and say this is just not not feasible. Now, does that mean it doesn't work anywhere? No. But you get to a point where you cannot reliably predict which population or which field or location or time within the season that it's going to work. Therefore, the risk of being wrong is too great. How do you all handle the names, like common names versus trade names? Well, we kind of mix it. A couple of examples, up until Vantacor came out, there was one Pro formulation Prevaton. So it's listed as Prevathon. Well, you get into things like imidacloprid or acephate where there's multiples. A lot of times we'll just use the common name in there and say, you know, acephate, because there's, I don't know, 8 or 10. Imidacloprid is, what,
0: 20, 25?
3: Generally, we choose the most common, and we'll have them listed underneath them.
0: I've really struggled with this. Over the years, because I don't want it to be these words that nobody knows what they are. Yeah. And there's some of them, like imidacloprid. I know what imidacloprid is. Glyphosate. Y'all know what Mm -hmm. glyphosate is. Y'all know what metolachlor is. But do you know what safflufenicil is? You don't, or you might. It's usually based on how many
2: formulations are out there. I think the other
3: thing on the formulations is like imidacloprid, two-pound versus four-pound. Like, then you have to have one of both right? just in case.
2: Kind of like your clethodim thing.
0: Yeah, ours has been if we have more than two trade names available, we've gone to the common name. All right, well, that was fine. Until more and more stuff has gone off patent, and now I feel like I got more common names in there than I do trade names, and we don't have an index of of the trade names in the current version of the row crop yeah. weed control guide because it was just that we had as many pages in the index as we had in the weed control guide. I did that
2: when I was in East Mississippi and and working on sweet potatoes. I did that for that, and it got very cumbersome. I mean, you'd have page and page and page of different formulations of the same active.
0: Kenner Patton that works here at Stonewall with us, I talked to him a lot about this this year for the 2022 guide. Of course, Kenner has a a long history in publishing, and he handles all my updates on my version of the weed control guide. So he knew what I was talking about, and he knew the quandary that I felt like I was in. So the way we got around it, we added a footer to every page in the weed control guide that has the online databases listed, whether that's CDMS or and Green yeah. Book, three or four of them, are listed on every single page. And so if you're questioning what this is, there's a, a URL to a website at the bottom where you can go straight to it and find it. And I don't know if that was the best way to do it, but that thing's only 84 pages long instead of 150 pages long. And, and the feedback that I've gotten from people shorter – has been one of the things that they have mentioned about it. So that's kind of been one of my priorities is keeping it as brief as possible.
3: And we do have a generic table, but it's really relatively small. It's like the real, mate, like Lambda, that has a whole bunch. Um, Like those that are really common with generics, we have that. But again, I think you just have to pick and choose. Like you're saying, if we want it shorter, you got to figure out a a loophole.
2: You're probably never going to get every one of them in there.
1: You could spend all your time, Don, diving through those web pages that Jason just mentioned, looking for I all know. of the and, and I have done and, some of that too. And
2: And not everything is on those because that's right. the, the, the man the company or that, you know, sells or manufactures, that's up to them to submit it.
0: Yeah, if you search like the number of glyphosate formulations on CDMS versus Agri and versus Green Book, the numbers are not going to be identical. They should be close, but they're not going to be identical.
1: As an extension specialist, I think it's really important to remember that these control guides, as well as any of the information that we generate from an extension standpoint on variety trials, variety testing plots, some may consider that not necessarily to have the most academic value, but the go-to content that we get through blogs, talking about it on the podcast, at general county meetings and whatnot, is extremely important. And, and I know that y'all would, would definitely make comment that goes with that as well.
0: This is one of my main efforts for the year. Every year is making sure this this weed control guide is up to date, accurate, and has the best information possible in it. So yeah, we spend a lot of time, and no, we don't get academic credit for the number of hours that go into it, but that's okay too because I think it's a really good publication. I think they all are, and I think the I've said this often that the variety trials and the control guides. Those are some of the most impactful publications that extension puts out. I would say in our system you can include the budgets for Mississippi State. those budgets are right there with us, and we've talked to Brian and will about those at length last year. I would say for for entomology, insect management
2: recommendations and threshold work probably has the greatest potential economic impact of anything that we do
0: yeah, and that maybe that's the way I was. The
1: the words I was searching for, Don. I I was going to say, of the questions that I get at meetings or in hallways or after meetings, it's more often how do you see this particular variety performing or how did it look? And, and, And I get more questions about the evaluations I do on variety testing plots than I do most anything else. I get more mileage out of that in a year than a lot of other things. And that's, so you just takes a tremendous amount of time to do that. But I I value that because I think it's important to provide those data to farmers. We
0: got really long with that one, guys. I think it was really good information. You know, if Whitney had had a straight answer on the sitcom thing, I think we could have got off to a better start. Probably would have been a little shorter.
3: I'll do better next time.
0: I mean, you've had, you've had an opportunity <laughs> to think about it. So I'm going to give you one more chance.
3: If I had to say one, I would say friends.
0: Well, see, that's all we were
1: looking for.
3: There's, but no, I didn't, I there's mean, no
0: right
1: or wrong answer. She probably wasn't around from the infancy of that television show. And we all used to pile up in rooms and watch that stuff in college and everything else. We can't do another no, 10 minutes of babbling. We'd like to thank our regular listeners and definitely thanks for the suggestion on this. I think this is important information to get out to our listeners about how we develop these things and what really goes into that. Um, that's certainly something we'll continue. Um, you know, continue the thoughts and comments, questions, any good comments. Follow us on Twitter uh, and stay tuned for the next episodes.
0: The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.